And I think the thing that was a very key moment for me, one, I was, I was kind of completely alone in that moment, but um, I'm there thinking, I've I can't be sick. I've got to get to the Olympics. Like, and I was trying to mouth that to the to the doctor, and the doctor walked in and went, "Oh, don't be ridiculous. You'll never play sport again," and walked out. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to the Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Sue Reid is a psychologist and a sports star. A former goalie for the Matildas, she's also competed nationally and internationally in javelin, discus and weightlifting. Sue is the founder of Life Unlimited Psychology, a practice based in Canberra. She's worked as a psychologist for almost two decades and has a particular interest in peak performance, handling psychological pressure and work-life balance. Sue, welcome to the Good Life Podcast. Thanks so much, Andrew. Happy to be here. So tell me about your early interest in sport. What was, what was the first sport you played? How did you get into it? Uh, so probably like most people, my brother was playing sport, so I had to go along and play as well. Um, I think I was five years old and I started uh, with athletics. And apparently the story goes, I went into a discus competition. I threw twice as far than everyone else. And my <laughs> parents were like, we've got a champion. <laughs> and so they rushed home and then that became, that was pretty much it. That was like, this is who you're going to be. Um, so yeah, my Father went and did a huge amount of research, read everything in the world he could about discus, about training, about throwing um, events, and I started training basically at five. That was, um, and a similar thing happened in soccer. My brother played soccer. I went and played soccer. Um, did all the kind of normal rotations around the field. Ended up in goal and um, playing in boys competitions, and uh, I was better than the other boys and so everyone just well than the boys and so they said that's that's where you're staying and so it kind of started from there. So it sounds like your parents were pretty impressively supportive uh, to be going out and reading every reading everything yes. as well. Yeah so it's a it's a it's an interesting relationship um my whole family is probably very obsessive anyway um which is a trait that goes through a few generations um so there was a lot of support in that sense and certainly uh, an immense intensity around that. Um, and in a sense, my mum almost became kind of like the manager of everything. My mum, my dad became the coach. Um, yeah, so it was a challenging and a supportive relationship in, in many ways. Did you feel pressure to do well at those competitions? Um, yes, I did. Um, the, the strange thing, I think it matched with some inner drive that I had because I think... Um, when I compare how I responded and how my brother responded, they're quite similar pressures, but we both responded quite differently. He's probably um, much more talented than I am, much more physically gifted, um, better at, at all sports. Um, I hope he doesn't hear this, but um, but that pressure for me kind of that my parents put on me, I kind of saw as a, a very positive driving force, mm -hmm. whereas I think for him that was – almost a very crushing kind of influence. So it kind of matched with me. There was a lot of pressure, but I kind of liked that as well. So 
And so presumably you were training uh, most days from that early age? Yeah, so at a, from about five, it was about three hours a day. By wow. the Yeah, by the age of seven, I know, I, I distinctly remember things got more intense because that's when you start going to Sydney for state championships and kind of moving up the ranks to more serious competition, if you can call it that at that age. Um, but so probably by that age, it would be 6 a.m. training, finish school, start training. Um, and so really from seven, eight onwards, I started weightlifting training, sprinting training, throwing training, um, went to, played a lot of sports. So, um, but yeah, it would be probably f- four or so hours a day and then gradually moved up to about five hours a day. Did you always enjoy it or do you remember feeling that a lot of those sessions were a bit of a chore? Um, I do remember thinking once or twice that um, it was, you know, uh, daylight saving because we would essentially train until it was dark. I remember thinking school finishes at three. We don't finish training until it's dark. That means it's like eight o'clock. That's five hours. But I mean, for the most part, I had this very strong sense of I want to go to the Olympics. That means I've got to, I almost had this sense I've got to put up with my dad. I've got to put up with training so that I can get to that outcome. So, and, and in later years with other coaches, they're like, oh, do you enjoy it? And, I'm, and I kind of was like, well, why does that even matter? Like, I, you know, I'm doing it for a particular purpose. So I did enjoy it and I enjoyed that it was in the pursuit of something leading somewhere. So how old were you when you first thought that you would want to go to the Olympics? Pretty young. Like I would say probably certain, at the latest by eight, I would say. Yeah, that was a very distinct, like, this is this is where I want to be. This is where I'm heading. So, yes. yeah. yeah. Uh, and what makes a, a good parent of a, a talented youngster? Uh, looking back, uh, and, and also you, know, you must come into contact as a psychologist with lots of parent-child relationships, what's the, what's the right way for a parent to approach a child who seems to be gifted in some particular discipline? Yeah, and I think, I don't know if my views have changed on this over time. I Talking to people now who said that they were very gifted when they were young but felt like they never had the opportunity because their parents didn't push them, they often reflect back to me that they wish they were pushed like I was. Um, I think there does have to be an element of expectation. There absolutely has to be a huge amount of support. You can't drive yourself to training 30 hours a week when you're 10. Um so you, I think you do have to have thirty hours a week. That's yeah, astonishing. it's a, it's a fair, <laughs> it's a lot. And um, sorry, go on. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um, so you you have to have a very supportive environment. And you, I think you you know all the elite athletes would say their parents or their family, um, really invested a lot of their lives into them. Mm. So you do have to have support. I think there has to be an element of expectation, um, and without breaking, but. The, the person so you've got to encourage that without breaking it I I'm not sure whether my parents got it exactly right um and because there you know it was there was a lot of harshness around it as well um or a lot of you know this is just what you have to do there's no oh. choice um on reflection now when I've looked at successive generations of kids coming through a lot of those things that I would have seen as as pretty big hardships then in some ways I'm grateful for um but I think it is a very fine balance between you do have to be invested, you do have to know 
does a child in particular have the psychological makeup to kind of push and encourage along that? And there has to be a certain element of support. My, my family was probably very uh, perfectionistic in a lot of ways, quite harsh about a lot of things. So there was a huge investment of support. Um, there probably needed to be a little more softness as well around that. Um, but I think it is an interesting question. And, and now when I talk to a lot of my um, people that I played rep soccer with growing up, who were extremely talented and they're like, oh, we kind of wish we were as pushed as hard as you. And I'm like, really? Like I didn't, you know, so I think, yeah, there is an element of getting that that right. Um, yeah. Did it help that you had those three sports, the discus, the javelin and the, and the soccer? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, certainly some of my track and field coaches, I think, would have reflected that I needed to specialise, to just stop soccer earlier and soccer said should have stopped the other one earlier um you know it was a very different time in women's sport you didn't get paid we were selling chocolates ruffle tickets doing nude calendars all those things to try and get money so my enjoyment of both was extremely high and to drop off one felt like cutting off a limb so it was very hard to kind of leave one for the other eventually i had I, i kind of continued on with soccer the longest um i think it for me, I think it was helpful because I was a power athlete in athletics and um, and also a goalkeeper, so that's all power related sports. So there was there was complementary aspects of that, um, but there is a point where you have to you have to specialise. But yeah. And who was your favourite coach growing up? Can you tell me about them? Yeah, so that's so. So my dad was a huge influence, as I said. Probably one of the m- most influential people was my my ongoing goalkeeper coach. So I think I went to a, an ACT clinic when I was about 11 or 12. Um, and there was a coach there coaching all the goalkeepers, a guy called Jim Hayes. Um, and he kind of took me aside afterwards and he's like, oh, you're pretty good. <laughs> like, where did this come from? And and he kind of made an appointment to come and speak to my family and said, you know, I think she's got a lot of talent. I think she needs, like you've done great, but she needs more more specialised training. And he said, I'm willing to do that. Um, I would like to train her at least three times a week, probably five times a week. Um, and then my parents were like, oh, we'll talk about it because, you know, we want to pay you and all that. And he said, no, I don't want to be paid. I just, I want to invest in this person. Um, and he really became a huge influence in terms of the training um, for the sport, but also, you know, after every session we'd have talks, discussions, talks about the purpose of life and the meaning of life, um, talk about family. Uh, and he was so a very strong mentor in, in my whole sporting career, but all in my life as well. So, and he, so he coached me really from then on, so all the way through my career um, until he, uh, he, from doing so many cold nights in Canberra of training people, he got lung disease and he said that I would still try and make him go out and coach me. <laughs> but, um, but he would have to be, yeah, an immensely um, influential person. And do you remember him uh, having particular techniques to keep you going when you were sort of struggling with motivation? Yeah, most of my coaches would probably say I was too motivated. So okay. um, a lot of the time I think they're trying to slow me down. Um, so because I'd just been – probably one of my key strengths is around resilience is pushing, mm. persevering, um, probably too hard for too long. So he he would challenge me on a lot of that. He's like, why do you need to train so hard? You're doing too much. It's, it's affecting you or it's going to affect you. So um, – 
And he said, if I could, I would I would have him out there every day doing more training. Or, you know, and he would tell people often, I'd be like, just, just 10 more kicks, 10 more this, 10 more minutes um, to try and do more. So he was really trying to bring some balance, I think, into into my personality mm. and into my, my training as well, um, which has been a theme probably throughout my life. So <laughs> Yeah, I remember a comment Malcolm Gladwell made a while back where he was saying once you get to – that really elite level of, in his case, middle distance runners, uh, you're basically at people that can take extreme levels of pain. And actually what uh, separates the top athletes from, from the next rung down is the ability to distinguish between good pain and dangerous pain uh, and to back off and say, I was going to do 10 repetitions, but after number eight, I'm feeling this twinge in my knee. Uh, and if I don't do the next two repetitions, then I'll probably get to be in a position where I can train tomorrow. Whereas if I do the next two, I've got a chance of being injured. Uh, do you feel as though that kind of, uh, that, that your mindset probably made you more vulnerable to injuries? Yeah, because I, th- I think you're absolutely right. There is an element of dis- the discipline for long-term career around training. I mean, you're always on that edge of you've got to push hard enough to improve, right. but not so hard that you snap something and then you're injured. Um, so it becomes very much a discipline that your your tool that you're using is your body and it's, it is very vulnerable and only has a certain amount of life in it. Um I think I think that constant pushing, yes, is is a vulnerability that probably then showed up later for me. And I think in many ways that family kind of culture, the only way we know in, that I've kind of inherited is on or off. So it's you go – and often when I would exhibit symptoms of, oh, I'm, I probably need to take some time off, my interpretation was, I'm lazy, I need to push harder. There's something <laughs> wrong with you. Five hours is not enough. You need to do more. So um, I think, yes, it's very much about that. And and probably another major influence for me about a very good thing my parents did at about the age of 11 was to get me a psychological coach, mm. someone to teach me, well, essentially we'd call it mindfulness now, but deep kind of self-hypnosis um, imagination, mental rehearsal, visualisation. Um, and that was another person who um, was able to help try and bring some balance into into me. So um, as well as getting me prepared for competitions, was very much interested in about longer-term life um, and, and that balance of if you're going to have a long career, you've got to recover, you've got to be disciplined about that and you've got to kind of be, know when to back off. And I think that's it's a very it's a very hard balance to get right in that world of, of elite sport. Yeah, so uh, but yeah, so the uh, the runners world uh, uh, guru is uh, is talking uh, talks a lot about running for life. Uh, so there's a choice. No no individual race is is worth destroying your entire running career for. Uh, and uh, yeah, you have the example of comrades, which uh, the double marathon in South Africa that knocked him out for a solid two months and just wasn't worth pushing that little extra bit for. Uh, what did you find you got out of the the performance coach there? What, what's what was what did they did they teach you particular routines for uh, yeah. competition that you, you used? Yeah, so probably the so that um, so it was called self hypnosis. So, but essentially, uh, trained me. So every night after physical training, we'd go home and have a half an hour routine of learning to get into a deeply relaxed state, mm. and then in preparation for competitions, using mental rehearsal and visualization to rehearse exactly how I wanted to perform. Right. Um, and really, almost without exception, everything that I visualized would eventually 
happen in competition, but it was about adding to the physical training. And here, you know, I think the philosophy around that was most athletes at the top level are pretty similar. You know, in, in a running race, people are winning by one one hundredth of a second. Or So it's really about who can remain relaxed enough, calm enough, appropriately kind of um, in the zone to perform on the day. Mm. And and I think it was we don't want to leave that to chance. We want to be able to 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 reliably predict that. And that so that mental aspect was was probably the key. And that would have to be my strength because certainly in athletics competitions, I'd be on the first dais and the second and third people would still be taller than me, bigger, you know, bigger in every way, more physically talented. And I think it was it was more that mental ability that mm. that helped me. Um, probably get as far as I did for as long as I did um, without the physical characteristics with it. But yeah, that that and and that visualization, um, mental imagery and rehearsal is still being good stead for everything. I'd use it for exams. I'd use it for public speaking. Um, probably every major event in my life. That's um, that's what I would I would still rely on now. So and and probably um, because it's a form of mindfulness, it's it helped really you know switch off the stress response help me deeply relax and bring better balance into my life and that's something really from the age of 11 I've I've had to continue doing so that was a incredibly valuable person and probably spurred me to get into psychology as well he was a great influence around that so tell me a little bit more about how the technique works so you you sit, sit down close your eyes and envisage yourself doing the challenging thing well yes for for for, some, for what period of time are you yeah so um part of it is is trying to to get down um really get past the conscious kind of barriers in the brain, which will reject some of that. So get, you know, really trying to lay down at a neurological, more subconscious level, um, the brain pathways. And I guess there's more evidence around that now that we can imagine and we can you know, generate nerve connections. Uh, so you, you know, go, might go through progressive muscle relaxation, breathing techniques. Um, it might take a good 15 minutes or so to get into that relaxed state um, and really through very specific routine. Um, and then, uh, say I was getting ready for a national championships, I would research the stadium, my competitors, what it was going to look like, as much detail as possible, and then go through the visualisation of the entire routine, of the entire competition. Um, you don't imagine everything going perfectly. You might imagine everything going wrong, but you still performing exactly as you want to perform. Mm. And so it's that, and so by the time you get there on competition day, in your brain, you've already done 500 repetitions of this competition. Um, you know, and in a sense for the Olympics, you don't want to, you can't really turn up and hope to have a good day. So <laughs> you want to make sure that your mind is in, is in exactly that right zone and really stay, staying relaxed enough. So you don't mm. tense up and, and become too overwhelmed. So it was about doing as many mental rehearsal um, imaginations of the event happening as possible. So when you get there, you might take a couple of deep breaths and go, oh, yeah, here's where I go out and win this competition. Um, And, you know, before, particularly in athletics, before certain throws, I would just do a quick visualisation and you can feel your body change and get ready for that. So it's, it's really that very powerful link between the mind and the body. And, and I think using that extra, whether it's 10% or 1% or 90%, but the, the mental part of it, um, to really enhance the physical training. And, yeah, like I said, that's I use that with a lot of clients now, certainly to whether it's to manage um, nerves for exams or for sport performance, um, but, but going through and training that. 
Um, and there have been good studies around for improving golf technique, basketball technique, for you know different sporting techniques. That that element that's often underutilized, which is the mental, the mental aspect. So yeah. Yeah, I remember. Uh, sorry, everything for me comes back to back to <laughs> back to running. But uh, I remember one of the most useful bits of adv- advice I got for the uh, first kilometer of a marathon is run it like you're asleep, um, because so many people burn so much of their energy with that uh, that stress on the start line and worrying about their start. And you know, if you're Elliot Kipchoge and you're trying to sort of stay out in the front of the pack, you probably need to be a little bit tense and stressed and so on. But if you're everybody else in the race. Run it like you're asleep is just great advice for the first K of the race. Absolutely. Uh, now, you, uh, your elite sport career ultimately came to an end as a, as a result of illness. Uh, t- tell us how that came about. Yeah, so I guess my whole, yeah, my whole life obviously was about um, working towards the Olympics. Um, and then I think I remember in, whether well, it was 1993, you know, they said the Olympics was going to be in Sydney, which was kind of the ultimate dream being in your home country. And I think seven years out, I was in the running for both sports still, um, being considered for soccer and for track and field in the lead up to that. Um, I think one of the challenges, it's that, you know, that theme through my life of pushing very hard. Um, as we were getting closer, I mean, perform- my performance, um, you know, was good in both sports in the lead up to it. Um, but I think a couple of years out, I was studying at university. I was training full time. Um And I was starting a business. So my business was originally around, um, you know, some counselling, nutrition, personal training, um, and trying to keep all of those areas going for for too long, I think started to to take a toll on my body Um, in my perfectionistic way. Like I said, I I thought, oh, I'm seeing symptoms. Um, And so I thought that I just needed to work harder. And I think – and so pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. Um, I think in – national championships in soccer um we played a tournament in queensland i think we all got bitten by mosquitoes didn't think anything of it um i played terribly in the grand final couldn't lift my legs couldn't jump off the ground i knew there was something really wrong somehow we're like we got flight got back to canberra woke up the next morning and i couldn't move and i was just i remember distinctly being in bed couldn't move my arms couldn't move my legs completely freaking out and panicking but, but just had to lay there for a few hours there was no one around um eventually I was supposed to be somewhere and I think someone came and kind of got into the house found me and I still was unable to move so I kind of got rushed to hospital um and they did a whole lot of tests they thought it was viral meningitis because my temperature was through the roof my joints were all swollen my whole body had kind of completely swollen um and I, it actually probably took a few days to really work out what it was, but essentially my immune system had just become completely overrun. Um, I had Ross River fever, um, which was kind of during one of the, the severe um, breakouts in Queensland when that had happened, um, and essentially then found that I just had a whole lot of viral-based illnesses in my glandular fever, which turned into chronic fatigue, the Ross River fever, cytomegalovirus, a whole range of viruses, mm. which essentially my immune system had just collapsed. My digestion and my digestive, digestive tract and system was was like completely inflamed and pretty ruined at that point. Um, and I think the thing that was a very key moment for me, one, I was, I was kind of completely alone in that moment, but um, I'm there thinking, I've, I can't be sick, I've got to get to the Olympics. Like, mm-hmm. And I was trying to mouth that to the, to the doctor and the doctor walked in and went, oh, don't be ridiculous, you'll never play sport again, and walked out. 
Wow. And that was that was kind of that moment of what what do you you know? And I re and I very clearly remember thinking, well, if I can't play sport, like that's the whole or go to the Olympics. This is the whole purpose of kind of twenty five years of my life. Um, what is the point of life? And I think that was a distinct turning point. That, and I really realised in that moment, the medical profession were very interested in making sure I wasn't dead. But once they'd worked out I wasn't dead, it was like, okay, you're at zero, see ya, that's it. So they were interested in the minus 10 to zero, but not very interested that if you are not dead and you are alive, what does it mean to have a, you know, to have a good life? What does that, that zero to plus 10 kind of stuff look like? Um, and that, you know, that really fascinated me then. Um, and I really read, I, I, I bounced around from specialist to specialist to specialist, did a whole lot of research to work out how do I actually get well again, well enough to live a, a meaningful life. Um, ideally, you know, for me, I also want to play sport again, but it was that sense of how do I get back to any kind of health and what does that actually mean? Um, and that really opened up this whole idea of this optimal living, purpose of life, meaning of life, um, and, and kind of redirected things from there very much. Did you continue playing uh, sport at that uh, that high level? Did you? So it took um, I because I was pretty tenacious and I wanted to play at a high level again. I spent it really took a couple of years. I was already studying science, so I used a lot of that science knowledge and nutrition knowledge and research to start to try and reheal, get better. Mm -hmm. um, I did get back into the Australian team. Uh, not before the 2000 Olympics, which was pretty devastating. I think I got back in around 2001, 2002, 2003, and it was in the lead up to the 2004 World Cup. Um, I think there ha there was a lot of toll that had been taken on my body. Um, and I was also at that very defining point of, do I keep investing in this or do I have to like now go down the pathway of, of career and earning a living? And because um, we weren't, weren't really getting paid at that point. Um, so I did get back there, which was something I really wanted to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, it became hard to kind of sustain at that level. But uh, I did get back to playing sport and I did get back to that level, which is really what I, what I wanted to be able to do. Um, and partly just to be able to almost wanted to go back to that doctor and say, well, you know, I did actually get back to playing sport. Um, but, it, you know, it was a very long road. And it really the illnesses that I, that I got at that point in time have left me with, with things that I have to manage for life. So it's arthritis throughout my joints and my system from the Ross River fever. I've got more rheumatoid kind of arthritis coming on. There's, there's a whole lot of kind of issues around that. I'd fractured my spine with weightlifting. So there was a lot of things that had kind of um, – that, that I probably had to – reach a point of saying, okay, I've got to back off with a, with a high-level sport. So most of us never really imagined that we'll go to the Olympics, but you'd had this Olympic dream from age eight. Uh, how did you then um, cope with the notion that that dream wasn't going to become reality? Um, well and not well. Um, I, think, I think I was probably in a lot of denial, so that kind of was like I must still get back there, and that spurred a lot of that trying to get well. Um, I think it's... It's taken a lot of work to get to a place of acceptance that, okay, that's not going to happen. And every now and then I do, you know, when I watch the Matildas now, I go, oh, I should, you know, what could have been, um, you know, and they're doing fabulously well. It's, um, yeah, there's there's always that part of me that's like, it's almost like a bit of an unrealised potential of, of ongoing, of where things should have gone. Um, there's a lot of grief around it too, I think, you know, not going to the Olympics, um, Everything in my life went towards that. Everyone expected that to happen. I expected that to happen. Um, 
the way I've kind of reconciled it is it probably, you know, redirected my life into a lot of very meaningful work. Uh, it's certainly given me an immense amount of empathy for <laughs> for a lot of the clients I work with in terms of um, grief, chronic pain, um, you know, bereavement, other things. There's a huge amount of empathy there. Um, but I think it is something I still – it still rears up every now and then. You know, when I watch the Olympics, I have this joint kind of excitement and sadness and that's – that's yeah, that's hard to reconcile. Um but it was really that kind of happening in the, in the way that it did that I think forced me down the path of what does it mean to have a, a meaningful life or to have an optimal quality life and, and to have purpose. Um, so I've had to redefine my purpose, like where that was heading earlier than I expected to. Um, and in many ways, I'm grateful that I, that I was interested in study, that I was doing a degree um, and, and the direction it kind of pushed me down in terms of, of being passionate about psychology. So, yeah. So I don't know if that answers the question. No, it's fascinating. <laughs> I was just sort of thinking about the relationship analogy, which is probably the closest that uh, non-elite sports people can get to. It feels a bit like sort of uh, breaking up with the love of your life and then discovering that they've become the, the TV newsreader and you have yeah. to uh, have, have to watch them regularly. Yes, uh, absolutely. Yep. Uh, so uh, so now you're you're working with a range of, of clients, particularly around this issue of, of building grit. And, and this is something that I worry about a lot, particularly as a parent, uh, how you manage to create environments for your children that provide stresses small enough for them to overcome them and, and become more resilient, uh, not large enough that they're crushing and, and, and create setbacks and, and move away from, you know, create a more fragile child rather than, rather than a grittier child. Do you have advice for building grit in our own lives and those of our children? Yes, um, I think yeah, and I because I do a lot of a lot of training now around resilience uh, and perseverance and grit and all the elements associated with that. Um, and I think we're getting clearer by looking at different generations and the influence on different generations um, what some of the factors might be that help build resilience. Because um, I think many people kind of look at the last couple of generations and think, oh, maybe there's a bit of a, 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 a less resilience. I don't know if that's too controversial to say. Um, I think there, there are a range of things that we have that we can do. Um, one is about what we can do for the kids and one what we can do for for all of us. I mean, one of the ways that I see it, I mean, resilience and grit, it's about our ability to adapt and respond to changes that show up. Um, but it's also about our ability to keep taking meaningful action in the pursuit of things that matter. And in a psychological sense, we would really say it's about our ability to build what we call distress tolerance. So our ability to tolerate distressing emotions mm -hmm. and still take action. And that's where kind of stepping out of the busyness of life and going, what is my meaning? What's my purpose? Where am I directed? What do I want to achieve? And then taking discipline, committed action towards that every day. And I think that's something I probably learned from my sporting career is you don't have to feel like exercising every day. You have to get up and you have to train. No matter how tired, how sore, you still have to do it in the pursuit of some kind of outcome. And I think some of those elements we've really kind of robbed from our next couple of our, our younger generations at the moment. Because um, I think, you know, some parenting kind of advice I would say is you know at some level to build resilience we do have to have expectations of kids we've kind of taken away this link between action and consequence or effort and reward we've taken away a bit of the intrinsic motivation that should come out of activities we're, we're making it linked to if you be a good person I'll give you a reward um, 
and and I don't think that's a very successful way of doing it. We've over-focused on self-esteem, uh, so feeling good and feeling good about ourselves. And the problem with that is if, is, is if you actually want to achieve anything in life that's meaningful, you often don't feel good and you don't you certainly don't feel good about yourself. And so that's I think it's been a very poor message that we've we've given to kids. I think far more important is your sense of self-efficacy, which is your belief that you can get up, take action in the pursuit of a meaningful outcome, and you can influence that in some way by, by working hard. Um, and I think some of the basic things with kids, we have to say no. And, you know, I look back on my childhood now, um, and like I said, a lot of the hardships and the deprivations are actually probably most of the things that generated grit and perseverance and appreciation. You know, we couldn't afford a lot of things. All the money we had went into our sport. So it meant anything we did get, we were inc incredibly grateful for. <laughs> um, but we had a real sense of this link of there's either our parents are working for that money or there's some kind of um, cost associated with it. And I think because of our wealth and our materialistic wealth now, kids don't see that a lot of the time. And I think for parents, you know, to say no to your kids now, you actually have to tolerate feeling bad because most of the time we can afford stuff that they want or we can kind of, um, you know, we can make them feel better by buying something or giving them something. So you actually have to be pretty committed to saying no. And I think we need to say no and set boundaries. And in setting boundaries with kids, they learn this distress tolerance. They learn, I can't have everything I want. I do have to behave in certain ways. I do have to be a good person. And that hurts sometimes. And when I'm hurt, I've got to work out how to lick my wounds, how to look after that, and come back out and re-engage with the world. And if we don't say no to kids, they don't learn that. And I think with the teenagers we, we work with, we're seeing a lot of this dysregulation, that you, you ask them to put the dishes in the dishwasher and they have a tantrum, they, you know, and punch a hole in the wall, and you're like, okay, that's not an unreasonable request. Um, you know, and I think that sense of contribution, we've moved a lot from a very much a kind of... Uh, we-based society, a contribution-focused society, you know, prior to kind of the, well, the 1990s and before, to now it's very much this we-based, individualistic I-I kind of culture. Oh, this me-based culture, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and and that away from that idea of contribution. And certainly what we know is that if people want to be deeply content, deeply happy, that often comes through connection and contribution to others. And, you know, at a very basic level, that means kids should have chores around the house. They should be contributing to the family unit. Um, and even and lots of families we work with, they go, oh, we didn't want the kids to feel bad, so we do everything for them. So they don't, I think it's hard to build resilience and, right. and a sense of contribution if we're not making them contribute from a, from a very young age. Um, so some of the things, boundaries, saying no, giving them chores, um, Getting them to make your coffee in the morning is important. <laughs> so, um, but you know, and some expectations around that. That you know, this I, this this time we've come into where everyone gets an award just for showing up, um, regardless of the effort that's put in. It, it's been a very poor experiment socially, I think, because then people don't really get that you actually have to put in effort. You have to have to be a good person. You have to work out. I didn't do so well, I have to go away and work harder. And I would say, you know, growing up, one of the biggest motivations my parents use is one of my biggest competitors. They would remind me constantly that she was at home training harder than I was and she beat me in the last competition so I'd have to work harder. And that would spur me on for 12 months, you know, of, right, I've got to get better. If if I hadn't been beaten, I, wouldn't, I don't think I would have got better in that sense. So I think... Um, that really make, you know, we're not wonderful people just because we're born. We're wonderful because of what we do, the way we relate to other people um, and having some intrinsic sense around kindness. 
care, contribution, service. I think, you know, some of those are pretty important. Yeah, the chores thing is fascinating. The, uh, my middle son's happiest moment last night was when I'd asked him to go outside and pick up some skateboards, which were lying out and would have gotten warped in the rain. Uh, and then he finished doing that. And then he decided off his own bat to go and get in the uh, some of the Halloween decorations. Uh, and to see the look on his face at, at my kind of pleasure when he when I'd seen that he'd gone and gone and done this extra chore um, just lit him up. It was it was beautiful. Uh, but that that then kind of made me wonder about the link between service and sport. Isn't there a sense in which sport is ultimately a fairly selfish activity? Yeah, and I, you know, yeah, I think about this a lot. I mean, it's weird because one of the reasons, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to be good at sport, actually, and I should say my first choice was I wanted to be a singer and I wasn't very good at it. <laughs> but I, you know. This is age four before you Yeah, yeah, that's no, right. Okay. Exactly. That's right. I wanted to be pink, but, you know. <laughs> um, but um, I really remember thinking I want to be good at sport, so I've got a platform to do good things in the world. And that was, whether that was singing, whether it was sport, it was this sense of I need to be dedicated and learn this craft, do well at it, and that will give a platform to try and initiate positive change in the world. And that was a very strong driver from, for me. And I think, you know, because with profile, people get to, to influence more broadly. Yes. Um, so the pursuit of sport can be very selfish um, or, or self-focused um, but I do think it's then what do you do with that um, and and partly it's about I think the skills that you learn along the way and then how you utilize that there's a lot of skills um, I think I learned you know to tolerate distress to keep pushing hard um, to put off more fun stuff to do less fun stuff in the pursuit of meaningful outcomes um, those things which have set me up well to do to do mm, better mm. you know in the world more broad, broadly so I think it is how you, how you utilize that but there's a lot of um there's a lot of key skills we learn in sport you know in Australia when you win you've got to learn how to win and be very humble and and very you know modest about that when you lose you've got to learn how to look after that work hard take care of it get back out there and they're they're important skills that everyone needs to learn so I think um, there is, yeah, there's good lessons and principles, even if it's a bit more self-directed. Um, but team sport as well is very much about learning, cooperate, cooperate, communicate effectively. So, yeah, I think there's good things around that. So performance as training in some sense then, training for life. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I think now I'd strongly encourage, ev I think every child needs to play sport of some kind um, to learn to communicate, cooperate, learn what it feels like to not do so well, learn what it feels like, that connection with the physical body. We know kids, when they do physical activity, do better with their studies and their brain development and that holistic kind of integration. So uh, I don't think you can just sit inside, never play sport and be really well-rounded. I think there's, there's a lot of things. You don't have to be fantastic at it, but there's a lot of things that you can learn through that. And I think I have reflected that a lot more since we've now got generations of kids never playing sport, any kind of sport from, you know, ever. So, you know, they might try sport for the first time at age 30. And that, that's, that's a little bit scary because I think there's a lot of important um, skills development that we get out of that, emotionally that we get out of that. 
And you still exercise every day, don't you? Yeah. So now um, now that I can exercise, um, it is a constant management thing. But I think, yeah, if I don't exercise, I'm not very well. Um, I, I don't thrive as well. I don't do very well mentally. It's a, it's a huge way of coping just with stress. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see exercise really as my main form of mood regulation, um, de-stressing, coping with the world, um, not just because of... Um, I mean, maybe it's because I'm wired that way from all the training that I've done, but I do feel most balanced, most centered when I'm doing that. And for me, exercises, it's a form of, of meditation. It's you're in the zone, you're there, you're present, you're fully engaged with what you're doing. Um, it makes us feel more, you know, get more perspective, come back to problems a lot more regulated. So, yeah, I use it more, more for that now. And you've also got a pretty strong interest in the uh, what you, what you talk about as mood food and the uh, the the, li- the link between uh, health and what's it, what's in our gut. I, I noticed you were uh, tweeting last week about uh, fecal matter transplants, <laughs> right. and so <laughs> yes. you, you've clearly clearly got a, a strong interest in gut health as well. As well. Yes. Uh, what what have your um, what's what's your work there taught you about uh, how we ought to eat better? Yeah, and this really came from being unwell. You know, um, the main way I started to get better, I I discovered through kind of science research, it had to start with nutrition. Most of the medical world at that time was telling me nutrition had nothing to do with it, um, which I thought, you know, that's very unusual. And the way, you know, I really discovered that, you know, the most powerful drug we put in our body every single day is the food and the drinks that we that go in. So three to five times a day, we're putting very powerful drugs into our body that completely impact the hormones, you know, our hormonal pathways for the next four to five hours. And because we're eating every four to five hours, it determines our long-term health. Um, so even kind of 20 years ago, for me, it was really about very clearly recognizing what was inflaming my body, getting much clearer about the right proteins, the right fats for recovery and the right kinds of carbohydrates and I would say you know very direct link with um, getting better so away from disease but actually getting optimally healthy that all came from nutrition and then I think in more recent years you know we've had this huge amount of research obviously into to gut health um, the prebiotics the probiotics uh, recognizing the majority of the neurotransmitters for our brain you know the development starts in the gut our immune system is primarily located through the digestive tract um, and really, our, every single system in the body is impacted by the makeup of the, the bacteria in the gut. Um, and it's a very powerful link between our brain and our gut as well. So mental stresses and pressures show up. You know, we've got brain cells in our, our gut lining. Um, the mental pressures show up physically very powerfully in the gut. And what's happening in the gut very powerfully influences the brain. Um, so for me, like, I, I think the, the gut has to be the basis. Even, you know, 2,400 years ago, I think, um, you know, it was the, it, taken as for granted that all disease starts with the gut um, and all wellness starts with, with gut health. And we've kind of really moved away from that in modern medicine for a long time mm-hmm. and only just starting to come back to that now. And, yeah, the area of fecal transplants, which is <laughs> not always nice to talk about, but that's kind of an area where um, certainly, you know, across the world they're seeing is having quite dramatic improvements in people's health, whole range of different um, health conditions. And, and I think that just shows, you know, that paying attention, what we eat matters, it matters very powerfully from a moment-to-moment experience of life, of our health, but over the longer term. Um, 
And I think, you know, if you're putting any other drug in your body three to five times a day, you'd want to know what's the impacts, what am I taking, what's the dosage, what's the, you know, what's the, the impact of that. And I think that's, for me, you know, some awareness around that um the way that we eat so you know we've made it this art of mindless eating of eating while we work eating while we drive um you know getting takeaways and all those things which we know just disrupt kind of all the hormones in the body so going back to that point where we're kind of eating enjoying it choosing quality food um taking care of our basic needs i think it's got to kind of start there so compared to most of our listeners, what, what would you be, what, what are some things you're eating that most people wouldn't be eating and what are some things that you're avoiding that many people would be eating? Yeah, so I, I have to I have to pay a lot of close attention to what I eat. So kind of every, every day kind of needs to be planned. Um, I really re- I limit processed foods. So my kind of rule of thumb is can I kill it, dig it, pick it? Um, can I recognize it from nature? You know, if there's 40 ingredients on the back of it that are all chemical names, that's going to mess with your hormones. And and we know that's not good for our gut bacteria, but all of our health. I, um, you know, so I have a lot of vegetables. I Every meal for me, I do have some form of, of good quality protein, whether that's eggs, whether it's fish, whether it's um, grass-fed, organically raised, sung to at night cows or whatever you know I try and have um good good quality not necessarily a lot but good quality protein to fuel muscles immune system all that kind of thing um so it'd be kind of every meal I make sure I have a lot of fat so um whether that's nuts avocado olive oil coconut oil um you know most of our body all the cells in our body are surrounded by fat. Our brain needs fat. Fat is the key substrate for all of the key hormones in our body to, um, to, to function effectively. So I make sure I have a lot of good quality fat. I have a portion of protein about the size and thickness of the palm of my hand. And then the rest of it is, is as many vegetables that I can, and fruit that I can possibly um, manage around that. Um, I don't tend to eat takeaway processed stuff um if i go to restaurants i'll have some variation of meat and vegetables i guess um and yeah i would i would you know no fizzy drinks none of that. essentially in a supermarket i would walk around the outsides and not go into the aisles at all that's kind of the way i <laughs> say that 40 or so aisles in the middle is all sugar carbohydrate chemicals packaged in different ways so i try and you know fruits vegetables meats maybe some dairy and, um, yeah, kind of run into the aisle to get the toilet rolls. That's, probably, <laughs> that's kind of, <laughs> that's, that's probably, yeah, how would I would, I would, that is what a typical day would kind of look like. Do you fast? Yes. So um, because I've had so many gut issues, it was getting to the point where, so I, I can't kind of tolerate gluten now, I can't tolerate onion and garlic. There's, you know, kind of damage that's been there for a long time. Um, and I... We've done a lot more research into fasting over recent years. I've done some really long fasts, so kind of five or six days to really give the digestive tract a rest. Um, now I, I'm, I'm t- playing more with 16-8, so eat eight hours during the day and fast overnight for 16 hours. Um, and the other most popular one is the 5-2 diet, so five days of eating, two days of, of restricted kind of calories. Um, 
And I think, you know, from a lot of the research and kind of the the practice with people, it does seem to give good outcomes very much in changing the bacteria that are in the gut. But I think also giving our digestive tract a rest, particularly overnight. You know, for us overnight to to trigger the hormones we need, like growth hormone that helps us repair and recover, we need to not be stuffing ourselves full of huge amounts of sugar and food right before bed. So that's where that finishing eating earlier, fasting, you know, for quite – 15, 16 hours overnight, um, seems to help trigger some positive responses at a bacteria level as well as a hormonal level. So I'm playing with a lot more of that now. Um, And I was surprised because kind of both being an athlete where you're just eating, you know, every two hours um, and then managing my food over the last kind of 10 or so years, I've been very diligent about when I eat. So it was a bit scary kind of moving into what? No food at all. Um, and I thought that I would completely fade, but I felt very mentally switched on. I felt kind of quite healthy during those times. So it's something that I'm I'm going to continue doing. Mm. Yeah. So let me uh, wrap up with a couple of uh, questions that I ask all of my uh, my interviewees. So what advice would you give to your teenage self? Ah, this is a hard one. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's quite hard. Uh, I think in some ways I would say, don't be so earnest. Don't try. Don't work so hard. But, you know, all the disciplined things I did then set me up very well for later in life. But um, I would probably say go overseas and live earlier. Um, don't think you're as bad as you are, you know, in the sense of enjoy um, enjoy your qualities a little bit more. I think I was probably very self-critical. Um don't be so committed so so early, <laughs> uh, you know, in the sense of, yeah, probably. I think most people around me at that time are saying, go and have some more fun. Um, don't be so disciplined. And at the same time, if I didn't do that, it probably wouldn't have set me up so well. Um, so, yeah, it's that's a, that's a pretty challenging one. But probably... Um, lighten up a little bit more would, would be would probably be my would have been my advice what's something you used to believe but no longer do um i think yes yeah, i want to i think one of them is around more for me this sense of i think i used to believe i wasn't good enough um and i think i finally got to that point of going oh i think i'm good enough you know, in, in what I know, in what I do, is good enough and um, and kind of accepting that a little bit more. I think for a long time that driving force was I'm not good enough, I, you know, and um, and that kind of limited me in some ways. So I think I've, I've kind of more deeply reconciled that. So, yeah. What's your greatest mistake? Uh, speaking to a perfectionist so everything feels like a mistake (laughs) but um um i think uh, a mistake one of my challenges is uh i tend to be very empathic very service oriented um and so one of the things that leaves me open to is letting sometimes not not having boundaries that i should have with people so it lets me let some not so good people into my life at times um and i think whenever i've not backed my gut instinct and kind of thought, mm, these people aren't so good. It's kind of wreaked havoc with my life. So I think maybe that greatest mistake is is not setting boundaries, backing myself around some of those judgments and maybe putting other people's needs before my own sometimes too much. And I think that's, yeah, that's had big impacts at times. And I think it's something that I, you know, 
continue to have to get that balance right. When are you most happy? Uh, so <laughs> I am most happy uh, definitely exercising. I think that's where exercising but also uh, performing in a sense. So I recently did go back and started playing, uh, went to the World Masters Games and um, in competition and that kind of exhilaration, I think I'm uh, that's I'm happiest. Uh, now that's off, you know, it's, it's both with exercise and competition but also – Weirdly, I was thinking about it, it's when I'm doing things that are meaningful. And at the moment, that's often getting up and speaking in front of a group of people or running workshops where it feels like it's meaningful. There's a really good connection. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I'm completely there. There's nowhere else I have to be. I'm completely focused. And, um, and that, yeah, I think I, I, I am happiest because it's meaningful and it's kind of fun and enjoyable. Um, and apart from that, listening to music. That's where I think probably a lot of pop music. But what are you listening to right now? Uh, I'm listening to, as people know, I'm a bit of a pink tragic. So um, I'm listening to and pink. it should be said you have purple hair at the moment. I know, that's right. I, I just want to – I'm older than pink, so I think she copied my stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, yeah, that's right. Um, so I'm listening to her new album. Um, I listen yeah, a lot of Adele the last few months. Um, it's mostly around the realms of pop, where I, I, you know, grew up in the 80s. So I think that's where I feel just that joyous kind of happiness with um, singing and listening to that music. So, Do you have any guilty pleasures? Uh, I should have more probably. Um 80s music is definitely one. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm never – I won't let go of that one. Uh the standard ones, probably chocolate, dark chocolate. Um, I think too much recently has been good red wine. That's probably – I don't think it's good for me, but I enjoy it. So that's been um, – that's probably been a bit too much of a guilty pleasure. <laughs> and finally, Sue, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think for me – the most powerful influences would have been my um, all of my grandparents. I was fortunate enough, whilst I had quite, um, like I said, that quite harsh parenting environment, um, my grandparents shaped me very powerfully through immense amount of unconditional love. Um, both I had a set of grandparents in England and a set in Australia. Uh, the grandparents that I had in Adelaide sort of who um, – were extremely dedicated to us as grandparents. My grandmother in particular really powerfully shaped my views of how you should be in the world. Um, And I think her, you know, from her actions really, she was of service, fiercely loyal. Um, She would fight and fight to, you know, maintain relationships with people. Um, We're in another state. Uh, I think my dad worked hard to keep us separate from the rest of our family and she would not accept that she's worked two jobs saved money to fly over you know back when you know airfares were, were phenomenal she would come or my, my nan and my pop would come to every major event in our lives um and everyone that you know was going through a hard time she would be there um she was fiercely loyal in her own relationship but to everyone friends people in the community um there was a sense of dedication and that a good life was actually being there through the hard times mm-hmm. for people um and that she demonstrated to me over and over and over again so and i think you know my grandfather as well we'd have a lot of deep conversations about purpose of life um and that sense of being a good person being of service to other people 
working through hard stuff and being committed, whether that's in your own relationship or to, to friendships. Um, so I think both of those really strongly influence me. And in many ways I probably try and, you know, live up to my nan's kind of reputation of, um, you know, it wouldn't matter what was happening in her life, she would be out there making sure she looked after other people if, if they needed help. And so I think, yeah, that informed me. And right through my family I think, you know, we have this sense of ethics. If you're working for an organisation, for a company, you, you or in, in whatever you do, you do that to the best of your ability. So I think that's something that, yeah, they, they very powerfully informed me. They sound uh, pretty extraordinary people. They're pretty amazing people, absolutely. Well, peak performer Sue Reid, thanks very much for taking the time to speak in the Good Life podcast today. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.